Merry Christmas, Fellowship Nashville. <laughs> Thank you, Lee. I really appreciate you. I know one of, someone has to constantly be wearing a Santa hat, so since I'm not wearing mine, you have to. Thank you. Really appreciate you, man. Uh, my name is Levi, for those of you who don't know me. And uh, if you don't know me, please come up afterwards and say, hey, I'd, I'd love to meet you. Um, I know most of the eyes in this crowd, but uh, if you haven't met me in person yet, please come up and say hey. Uh, I love Christmas. Uh, if you know me, that's not a, a strange thing to say. It's not a new thing. So like, oh, of course, we know you love Christmas, but I really like Christmas. Uh, Brent made a comment already. It's, it's finally cold, and I love cold weather, and it hasn't been cold recently, but today it's cold, and I really appreciate that. Uh, I, I actually, uh, last night, Rachel and I were talking about the, the weather, uh, for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and it's supposed to be a high of like 63, and that makes me so sad. It's, supposed, it's been raining, and it's supposed to snow, but regardless, it's still Christmas, and I love it, and I'm so excited that it's Christmas time. I love the lights. I think they're so beautiful. I love the little traditions that kind of just naturally occur in families, like especially around food. I love all the different kinds of food. Uh, my mom, every year, my mom always makes like sausage balls, and I love them so much, and uh, Rachel's mom makes these like uh, bacon wrap dates, and they're it's they're so they're like filled with like a kind of cheese or something I don't know, but they're so good, and I just I just love Christmas, and sometimes Christmas is awesome, but sometimes Christmas is really tough. Sometimes it's really hard. I don't know I don't know all of your stories, uh, but when the holidays are associated with painful memories. Or when life is just falling apart, regardless of what time of year it is, regardless of how many parties you go to or cookies you bake, sometimes life is just hard, and the holidays are just hard. And when those feelings happen week after week, month after month, year after year, it can feel as if God doesn't care about us or what we're doing, and it can kind of feel like he has abandoned us. This morning, we're going to be looking at a harder part of the Christmas story, the part of the story that we, we, don't really, we don't usually sing about in hymns, the part of the story many of us skip past, or if we don't skip past it, we'll, we'll read it just briefly, just so that we say that we read the whole Christmas story. But this morning, we're, we're going to walk through it piece by piece, because as followers of Christ, we can't afford to skip any part of God's Word, even the sad stuff. This morning, we won't be looking at the story through uh, as if it were through a stained glass window. We're not going to look at it as if it were this cheery, festive, easy to enjoy thing, because sometimes it's not. We're going to be looking at the reality of what is written in Scripture and see how our Savior experienced the formative years of his life. As we read, you'll notice, I, I want you guys to notice something about God. He doesn't shield his son from the traumatic experiences of, of this life, of earth. In the Christmas story, we're going to find a handful of instances in which God allows horrible situations to befall his son. My, 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 prayer, my prayer for this sermon is that you guys feel encouraged and that 
that we realize something. I say we because I'm also, I'm really, I'm, I'm preaching to y'all, but I'm also preaching over myself. That we realize something about God. And we'll, we'll unpack that kind of as we, as, as we go through. But I really hope we just kind of solidify something about God this morning. That we fully realize something about who He is. Um, where we left off last week, because we've been walking through uh, a series called The Promise. And it's been just a few weeks. And last week, we, uh, as we walked through the first couple chapters of Matthew, Jesus has been born, fully man, fully God, and it's, it's a big deal. Dave Bachman covered last week that the, that the portion of the story that contains the Magi of the East, and they followed the star to Jesus. And I was thinking about this Today, it's, it's, it's really cool. I was talking about it, actually, with Pastor Mark. In the four Gospels, we have, in, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have two narratives uh, of, of, of the birth of Christ in Matthew and in Luke. And only in Matthew do we really get to see the star and the Magi together. And I think it's so cool. This doesn't really have to deal with today, but I'm so thankful that we have so many testimonies of the story of Jesus. Because if we didn't have Matthew, we'd still have the life of Christ, but we wouldn't have the Magi and the star and all these other little pieces. So I'm really thankful for, for Matthew this morning. Um, these Magi told the king, King Herod, that they were looking for the king of the Jews and unintentionally kind of slapped him in the face emotionally because he was the king of the Jews. And they came to him and essentially said, we're looking for the king of the Jews, which means it's not you. Herod sends them off to Bethlehem and requests that the Magi come get him when they find the baby. And the Magi find Jesus, and they lavish him in kingly gifts. But then they're warned in a dream not to go back to Herod and not to tell him where Jesus is. And so they leave. This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. So if you all could open up your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, we, we should have some back at the Connect Point. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, just grab it and take it home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. So... But this morning, if you don't have a copy with you, we'll have it on the screen behind me. And uh, y'all can just follow along. Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. And when Herod, or excuse me, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all, he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentations. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But, then, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for, uh, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when they heard Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. 
And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Would you all pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for you and for your love and for your word. I pray that we, as we comb through this part of Matthew, that we have open minds and open hearts to receive and experience exactly what you want us to this morning. We love you so much. It's because you love us first. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. As we walk through these last few verses of Matthew, we're mostly going to be focusing on two things. In addition to looking at the hardship that we kind of already talked about a little bit, that is in this narrative, we're going to be looking at the fulfillment of prophecies. Now, when Scripture talks about the fulfillment of the law or fulfillment of the prophets, I feel like sometimes we get a little bit confused. We kind of think of the prophets as these like holy fortune tellers that are like, I'm making a prediction, There's gonna, this is going to happen, and it was like a really good guess, and then it happens. Like, oh my gosh, it, was, it happened. But that doesn't fully grasp what's happening when we talk about fulfillment. And that word fulfill, again, I love like original language, and you'll, you have, I'm, for those of you who are like, I can't, this is so boring, it's so cool to me. It's the Greek word plerao, that's in my southern accent, and it's a verb that literally means to make full. So fulfill, it's to fully fill. Does that make sense? So it's that, that's the idea, is to, to make full. It's the, it's the same exact word that Jesus actually uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I know it's like we kind of string everything together and say, I say fulfill, but it's really fulfill. People were really worried that Jesus had come to change what was written down or to get rid of the law and the prophets, but that's not true. That's not what he came to do. He's not replacing, he's fulfilling. Jesus is saying that the law and the prophets haven't been fully realized. They can't be completed on their own. Without Jesus, the law and the prophets aren't complete. They're, they're, they're containers that haven't been f- completely filled up. These prophetic statements and laws had meaning to everyone back when they originally spoke. And so it wasn't like it was said and they were like, I have no idea what that means. And then Jesus comes and like, oh, they had meaning in its context. But when Jesus shows up, we get the full realization, the fully filled thoughts and ideas around what was being said. Filling them whole. And we'll touch base on that here a little bit as we go because we're going to comb through each of these fulfillments and we'll kind of touch on what they mean in context and then what they mean with Jesus. So first we're going to jump into verse 13 through 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. After the Magi leave Egypt, or excuse me, leave Bethlehem, Joseph is warned by a messenger from God to get out of town as quickly as possible. Herod is secretly wanting to have Jesus killed and desires to know the location from the Magi in order to do so. Historically speaking, Herod 
is a super interesting person. He's terrible, but he's super interesting. He's so interesting, in fact, that the historian Josephus, who's like a super famous historian, especially for the ancient Near East, compiled two full volumes on Herod's life. And because of those two volumes, Herod is widely accepted as having the most primary sources of anyone in the ancient world, which means we have more historical evidence surrounding King Herod than we do of other historical figures like Caesar Augustus or Alexander the Great. We have so much information on King Herod. For some reason, Josephus was like, I got to write everything down about this guy. Herod was a very successful politician and was an incredibly paranoid person. He had 10 wives, and each of his wives produced sons, and each of those sons was always competing with each other and and scheming against each other to try to, to be the next in line for the throne after their father had passed away, and they clearly learned that from their dad. Without going into too much detail, too much gruesome detail, I should say, it is really well documented that Herod is responsible for the death of, just to name some of them, his favorite wife, his wife's mother, a bunch of uncles, a bunch of cousins, a priest, and a bunch of his sons. There's actually a quote from Caesar Augustus who ruled at the time. and We've got this quote just documented. And it says, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Which is like, in English by itself, it's like, oh my gosh. But also, like, if you look into the Greek, and we can, if, if you're a language nerd like I am, come find me afterwards. There's like some really cool, like, witty stuff in that phrase. But the, what we're supposed to get out of it is that if you were a threat to Herod, you were in really big trouble, and you most likely were not going to make it. This guy was so paranoid and so self-centered, and he was very aware of this. He was so deeply despised by the people he ruled, and Herod knew that. So when Herod actually started getting sick, so he started, I don't know the exact illness, but he started getting sick, he started nearing death. He actually had all of the Jewish leadership gathered into this this arena, and he told his sister, he's like, hey, when I die, I, I I want all of these people slaughtered in this arena so that when I die, People will be crying for when I'm dead. So he knew that if when he died, people were going to freak out and rejoice over the fact that this horrible king had died. So he wanted people that his that his, like leadership that the people of Israel actually cared about to be killed, so that people would be mourning not for him, but there would be mourning in houses after he died. Like this guy was terrible. He was the worst kind of human. God could have chosen anybody to be king when his son was born. But he chose Herod. I think we sometimes forget about that. Like, at least I feel like I read it and I'm like, oh man, bummer. Like, Jesus was born when this terrible king was ruling. Like, this wasn't random happenstance. It's easy for us to say, that, oh yeah, Jesus fled a terrible king without considering the fact that these were real people fleeing a really, really, really terrible person. Jesus and his family lived as refugees because of this horrible king. Why did God choose Herod to be king? 
Because he chose. This is not an accident. God ordains all things. Why did God choose Herod to be king? Scripture tells us to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. God used a bloodthirsty king to accomplish his purposes. In verse 15 of Matthew, he quotes Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, and it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, but out of Egypt I called my son. When Hosea spoke this over 700 years before the birth of Jesus, he was speaking on God in context. He was speaking on God delivering his people out of Egypt through Moses, or I should say under Moses. And when Joseph, the son of Jacob, not Joseph, Jesus' dad, but Joseph back in Genesis, when he brought his family into Egypt, they were a large family. But by the time they left Egypt, they were a nation, a young nation. And like the infant nation of Israel, the infant God-man was led to and then led out of Egypt and was subject to the rule of a tyrannical king or a tyrannical pharaoh. If you guys ever want to geek out about how cool the Bible is, talk about the, like, the reflection of the story of Moses and the story of Christ. It is ridiculously cool, the reflection there. It is, the Bible is so cool. Okay, verse 16 through 18. I'm having just as much fun up here as I, like, this is, this is such cool stuff. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod had spoken with the Magi, and they were all aware of when the star appeared and the timetable of how old the child was. Jesus was less than two years old, and in Herod's quest to keep his power and authority, he called for the massacre of every child under the age of two in the Bethlehem area. Dozens of babies are slaughtered in front of their parents in the hopes of killing the king of the Jews. And we don't, we don't really think about this a lot, because that's, we don't like to think about child massacre. But when we consider the fact that Joseph and Mary were living in Bethlehem after Jesus' birth, these kids were very likely Jesus' playmates. Like, this was their community. These were their neighbors. Not a single child close to Jesus' age made it. They were all slaughtered by this horrible king. This is real. This is This is a real thing. And this fulfilled what the prophet Jeremiah spoke in Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Just as a brief overview of kind of the the context of that, Abraham, a lot of you guys know Abraham. Father Abraham, we know Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two, son, two prominent sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob kind of became the more prominent character in the story. Jacob, who was later named Israel, had a bunch of sons. But through his favorite wife, Rachel, 
he had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Benjamin became the tribe of Benjamin. And then Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And those became tribes of Israel as well. In Jeremiah 31.15, Jeremiah is personifying the grave of Rachel, weeping as the tribes were cre- uh, that she created, uh, that were the tribes that were created through her offspring, are led into Babylonian captivity. And Ramah is the city about five miles north of Jerusalem and would have been uh, one of the cities that, that they would have had to go through on their way to exile. The fulfillment of this statement came in the crying out of Rachel's grave at the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem. We don't know exactly where Rachel is buried. That's actually kind of a, a big mystery in Scripture. But we do know, according to Genesis thirty-five nineteen, that it's somewhere near Bethlehem. This verse in the Jewish, in the ancient Near Eastern Jewish culture, had become synonymous with the suffering of the children of Israel. So when we read this statement, Matthew is saying, the grave of Rachel is crying out for, for the death of these babies who were children of Israel. Let's finish it out, verses 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. And he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. After the death of Herod, a messenger of the Lord comes to Joseph and tells him, Herod is dead so he can go back to Israel. Herod died in the year 4 BC. And his son, Archelaus, ruled over the regions of Judea and Samaria. So if you're looking at the, 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 middle, the middle East area, it's like Judea is the bottom part, Samaria is the middle part. From 4 BC to around 6 AD, And the reason that Archelaus only ruled for less than 10 years in comparison to his father who ruled well over 30 is because Archelaus was just as cruel, if not worse, than his dad. And he was so cruel, in fact, that Caesar Augustus, who feared a revolt of the Jews because of how much they hated Archelaus, they were ruled by Herod for over 30 years. They were ruled by Archelaus for less than 10 and And Caesar Augustus thought there'd be this huge revolt, so he swooped in, removed Archelaus, and banished him. Like, just took him off the throne. He said, you're done. You can't do this anymore, because he was that bad. So it makes sense that Joseph didn't want to go back to the area of this terrible king. So Joseph avoided Judea and Samaria and and took his family up to Galilee, which is the northern part. And the last verse we get in this chapter of Matthew is another fulfillment, but this one's a little bit different than the other ones. They went to a city called Nazareth. And there's a reason this part is is particularly unique. First of all, the city of Nazareth is actually never mentioned in the Old Testament, not a single time. And second... This phrase, it's not in quotes in Scripture, but oftentimes it's like, he will be called a Nazarene. That phrase, he will be called a Nazarene, is also nowhere in the Old Testament. So 
there's a little bit it's like, okay, what do we make of this? Sometimes people think that Matthew is talking about the Nazarite vow. And there's not a lot of precedent for that, but I thought I'd cover it just real fast just to kind of get it out, out of there. The Nazarite vow, a lot of you might know it, but it's the vow that Samson uh, took and didn't carry out very well, and John the Baptist took as well. And it, you, know, you, you can't cut your hair, can't be around dead things, and you can't drink wine. Jesus drank wine. We have that documented really well. And uh, if he had taken the Nazarite vow, he would not have been super approachable, and children most likely wouldn't have wanted to be around him, and children loved being around Jesus. So all evidence points to the contrary. He did not take the Nazarite vow. So what do we, how, what do we make of this statement? Even though the city of Nazareth is never technically mentioned in the Old Testament, through, through some really cool excavation of the city, we know that that, this, that that region remained relatively uninhabited for hundreds of years until about the year 100 B.C. And then in, and during that time, a small clan of Jews from Babylon actually came in and settled there and named the town after their family name, which is Netzera. The Netzereans were a Judean family that proudly identified by its uh, Davidic lineage and spoke of itself as the branch clan, which we're going to talk about here in a second. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 2 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The branch or shoot from the stump of Jesse the, the offspring of Jesse, that's the idea of the shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. The offspring of Jesse was King David. And the line of David is language that is used in the Old Testament to talk about the Messiah, the, the, the Christ, the anointed one. And this word shoot or branch, this is getting super technical, but I love it. The word shoot or branch is the word netzer, which is very similar sounding to the spelling of Nazareth. So it's Netzareth and Nazareth. And the difference between those two is one is with a T-S, Netzareth, and one is with a Z, Nazareth. Now, I don't want to dive super duper deep into like a language study because we do not have time for that. But just really, really quickly, the letter that gives the word branch, it's kind of tss, the Netzareth sound, is the, is the Hebrew word sadi. And in the Greek language, there isn't a corresponding letter, like an, a one-to-one translation of the Hebrew letter Sadi. So writers of the New Testament got the closest, and just Greek writing in general, got as close as they possibly could with the Greek letter Zeta, which is Z. So when, Ma- when Matthew is saying that Jesus will be a Netzerine, there's a lot of layers to that. Netzereth means branch town. That's what Nazareth means. And if we have it in our English as Nazareth. It's, again, just to be clear, that's the Greek way we're writing it. But if it was in Hebrew, it would be Netzareth. It means branch town. And Jesus is the line of David, which he is the branch of Jesse. So Jesus was raised in Netzareth, which makes him a Netzerean. But also, being from the stump of Jesse, the line of David... He himself is a Netzarene by lineage. So, this is so goofy, but I love it. Jesus is a branch man from Branchtown. He is a, by lineage, 
he is a Netzerian, but also by birth, where he lives, where he's from, he is a Net, he's from Netzareth, so he's a branch man from Branchtown, which is super fun to say, but Matthew is showing us, it's super powerful, the fulfillment of these branch prophecies, and the implication is huge. These Old Testament prophecies of a branch from the stump of Jesse are talking about, like we already said, the Messiah that's going to come. The line of David, the branch from the shoot of Jesse, is Messiah language. Matthew is making the claim that Jesus is the fulfillment, the fully realized, the realization of this, this messianic prophecy, these messianic prophecies. Jesus is the Messiah. That's how, that's how Matthew chooses to, to end the birth narrative of Christ. Right before we get into the, to Jesus' ministry, he's, he makes it clear to the readers, hey, here's this guy. By the way, he's the fulfillment of that Messiah, all of those Messiah prophecies. He will be called a Netzerian. He is the Messiah. So Matthew ends with an absolute bang and makes a point to say, this baby is awesome. We see these, all of these amazing stuff, but this guy, he's it. He is the Messiah. This guy we've been waiting for, this is the dude. I'm going to go ahead and welcome the band back up here. Um, but I, I wanted us to draw some conclusions of what we've been talking about. Um, I, I don't know about you, but if, if I was God, which would be dangerous... But if I was God, I would write this story completely different. I would write this story absolutely differently. I, I wouldn't do it anything like the way it was written. Jesus would not have been born in Bethlehem. He would have been born in Jerusalem. That's where the kings live. That's, that's the city. That's the place. He would have been born in Jerusalem. He wouldn't have been raised in lower class circumstances, in poverty, or as a refugee to, at the beginning of his life. He would have been raised in the capital city amongst wealth and comfort and culture as a king is supposed to be. The great I am, the savior of sinners, God made flesh. He should be where kings are because he's the king. But how God ordained history to occur our Savior was born in poverty amongst the animals. Our Savior narrowly avoided his own slaughter while the rest of his playmates were, weren't so fortunate. He lived as a refugee in a foreign land on the run from earthly authorities. This is not a random occurrence. This was 100% orchestrated. I know in our human brains it can sometimes be hard to kind of make sense of that, but if scripture is true, then we know that this, none of this happened by accident. God is in complete control. This was orchestrated by God, planned before he said, let there be light. In this story of the king of the universe, the God-man was despised by the world and wanted dead not just at his birth. If you read, if you haven't read the rest of the gospel, please do it. We just went through John. Go back and listen to him. It's great. Go through John. Jesus is despised his entire life. People want him dead all of his life. 
That's the story of God incarnate. And here's where it gets hard. If God didn't shield his own son from the trauma of this world, what makes us think our lives are going to be any easier? Why are we surprised that we aren't shielded from every single hardship? Just look at the way Jesus lived. He did not have an easy life. It's easy for us to thank God in the good times, but the doubts creep in when times are hard. I don't care how great of a Christian you are, whenever life is really, really bad, those thoughts creep in. If we're really honest with ourselves, be like, I never have those. That is a lie. I know you're lying. We're human beings. We're sinful. We have those moments where we go, God, what in the heck are you doing? I don't get it. It's not how I would do it. Here's the point I want us to to remember. This is what I want us to remember about who God is. Throughout all the traumatic moments of this story, Matthew makes the point to say this was to fulfill what the prophet spoke. Through the pain, through the hurt, God is still working and is very much present to fulfill what must be fulfilled. That includes us. He's got a plan. He's in control. It's not like the story of, 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 of Jesus finished and we read Revelation and God's like, well, shoot, I, oh, there, that's all I've got. He's got it planned out. He is in complete control. We are sons and daughters of the king of the universe. We suffer in this life because we are servants of the refugee king. That's why we suffer, because we identify with him. Because we say, I'm not of this world, I'm, I'm with the king. When life doesn't go as planned, don't jump to think God is inactive. Don't jump to assume God doesn't love you. Don't jump to think the worst of your creator. It's okay to feel, it's okay to have pain. I've already talked about this before. This has just resonated with me so much over the past few months. The majority of Psalms is David crying out to God being like, what the heck are you doing? It is okay to feel things. But when you feel those thoughts creeping in of, God, you've abandoned me, that's not, it's not true. I would die on that statement. It's not true. He hasn't, he will never abandon his people. I know it's easier said than done. I know. I know it's easier said than done. By God's providence, I feel like he, he has me preach certain things because he's like, Levi, you need to tell this. You need to speak this over yourself. I know, it, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. God's plan for his son was hardship. God's plan for his people was also includes hardship. And in that hardship, the purposes of God are brought to fulfillment. But the good news, the really, really, really good news, is that we're in between advents. The first, God's Son comes 
as a humble baby to live a perfect life and to die for our sins. The second advent is he's coming back. But as an exalted king, not as a baby, not as, not humble. He, he did it. He died. He conquered sin and death. He's coming back to make all things right. He's, when he comes back, that's, that's our hope. Hardship is going to happen. It's promised to us in Scripture. Jesus says it. He said, if you identify in me, if I've called you, the world is going to despise you. Why? Because it despised Jesus first. We know, we know, we know, we know that God uses hard things to bring the fulfillment of his plan. And we can trust him because he loves us. Because he loves us so much. And we can rest assured that he is coming back in glory as the exalted king of the universe. That's the reason to be thankful. That's the reason that it's going to be okay. Even when things are hard, it's okay that things aren't okay sometimes. It's okay not to be okay. But we know that we can rest in the assurance that God works through the pain. Would you all pray with me? God, we are so grateful for you. We are so grateful for your son and for your word that we can look and we can look at the, at the story that you orchestrated and see that through trauma, through pain, through hardship, you are full, we are fully realizing. We are so grateful. I pray for us in this season, Lord. I know for an absolute fact that there are people that are hearing my voice who are having a rough, rough time of it. I don't know if it's for the Christmas season. I don't know if it's weeks, months. I don't know if it's years. I don't know if it's just something that's always been. I don't know. But you are king, and not only did you know that this was going to happen, but you purposed this. You orchestrated it. And Lord, we know, we know, we know because of the story of the gospel, because of the message of scripture, that you sent your son in hardship to die for us and that our hope is not in the things of this life, but is in the second coming of your son, is in the death and the resurrection of the king of the universe, God. We love you so much, and it's because we, it's because you loved us first. I pray that we remember that this season, God, and it's in your son's name I pray.